Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. There was a big soup of opinion, and Lincoln's task as a politician on the way into the Civil War, when he was a rising politician, was to try to reach into that soup of opinions and find, build a majority of people who would actively oppose slavery in some way. It was a real challenge, uh, and it required him to make coalitions with people who weren't exactly on the same page as him about slavery, uh, who thought that he was behind the times, or he thought they were behind the times. And so as a politician, he had to figure out, how do I, how do I appeal to them? How do I pull them over to my side and not trip myself up because nine-tenths of the time I think they're wrong? That's Steve Inskeep. He's best known as host of NPR's Morning Edition. He's also an avid student of 19th century American history. His new book, Differ We Must, takes a fresh look at Abraham Lincoln's life by recounting 16 face-to-face encounters that Lincoln had with people who differed with him, sometimes vehemently. The book not only reveals Lincoln's skills as a master politician in a deeply divisive time, but it also has lessons for today. This is going to be fun to talk to you about your book, Differ We Must, because it's about two times in our history, then and now. Thank you, I agree. And it's about Lincoln's deliberate strategic way of dealing with those who differed with him. Are they equivalent states then and now? Was there as much hate then as there is now? Oh, my goodness. How would you How would you measure it? Um... it's funny that word hate because nobody really ever accepts that that's what they're doing. They will persuade themselves that whatever system they're in is the just and the right one. That was true of uh, slave owners even in the 19th century. And it's certainly true of a lot of people today. Um, Were we as divided, if we were to put it that way, as divided then as we are now? I mean, probably more so then. I mean, we actually went to an actual civil war. There was this profound difference over how to organize the whole of society, who got to belong, who didn't get to belong, uh, how to organize our economy. And honestly, we still have faced questions like that, right? Like who gets to be a full citizen and who is not quite? And what kind of economy should we have? And what are the conditions of labor and everything else? But I, I, don't, I don't think the divide is quite as, quite as stark as it was in the 19th century, although it's close enough that I do feel that studying the one gives some insight into the other. So how did Lincoln handle the division that he was faced with constantly? Well, he understood 
that he was in a free society, in a republic where people had lots of different opinions. Um, and even if we pick that one great issue of slavery, people would have a wide range of opinions even about that. Uh, and it takes a minute even to consider what I'm saying there because it's so obvious to us. I hope to everyone listening that slavery is wrong. Maybe there's still somebody out there who thinks it's fine, but but by and large, people understand that it's just wrong. And there's really only two opinions to have about it, that it's wrong or you're completely out of it. Um, in the 19th century, people had an incredible range of opinions. They would say that it's totally wrong as we would today. They would say that it was right and just and traditional in the way it should be. And then there were people in the middle who would say, well, slavery is an evil or slavery is unfortunate, but then they would begin with all the rationalizations why they shouldn't really have to act against it or why it wasn't the right time to act against it. There was a big soup of opinion. And Lincoln's task as a politician on the way into the Civil War, when he was a rising politician, was to try to reach into that soup of opinions, most of which we would find objectionable either way. In fact, almost all of them would be opinions we would not agree with today. And find, build a majority of people who would actively oppose slavery in some way. It was a real challenge, uh, and it required him to make coalitions with people who weren't exactly on the same page as him about slavery, uh, who thought that he was behind the times, or he thought they were behind the times, or maybe they agreed with him about slavery, but they had a totally different view of immigration or any number of other issues. And so as a politician, he had to figure out, how do I how do I appeal to them? How do I pull them over to my side and not trip myself up because nine-tenths of the time I think they're wrong? So he could get them in a way to be part of a coalition based on one thing out of a hundred yeah. Yeah. that they agreed on. Yeah. But could he get them to actually change their vote? Uh, he could get people sometimes to change their vote, which is different than getting them to change their mind. And this, uh, Alan, is one of the insights that I think is relevant uh, relevant today. I mean, we're heading into the holidays where people get together with their families uh, and at many, many a table, there will be uh, an uncle or a brother or a grandparent or whatever, grandson, grand granddaughter, who uh, has totally different views than you. And it can be extraordinarily frustrating and extraordinarily challenging. And if you're thinking, you know, my job now is to try to change this person's long-held beliefs, basic beliefs, over the course of a two- or three-hour dinner, I mean, it's not going to happen. People do not necessarily change their basic beliefs. Lincoln did not necessarily try to do that, but he would try to figure out why would it be in this person's interest, in this person's self-interest, to vote as I would like them to vote, to vote on this one issue the way that I would like them to. He would reach out to white voters who were more or less okay with slavery and try to persuade them that it was in their interest to favor at least a little bit of equality because slavery could also be very bad for white people and detrimental for white people. And so he would put it in, that, in those terms because these were white voters, the people who had the power of the vote. He reached out to so-called nativists, people who hated immigrants, who didn't want foreigners to be able to vote the same way that other people could and didn't want foreigners to be able to serve in government. Foreign-born Americans is what I mean to say. Um, and Lincoln found those views awful, uh, deplorable, you could say. 
And yet at the same time, he realized that they had the power of the vote and he needed the votes of nativists. And so in the famous 1858 Senate campaign, where he's running against Stephen A. Douglas in Illinois for a U.S. Senate seat, he desperately needed every voter he could get. And so he reached out through a nativist friend of his who was a politician to appeal to nativist voters. He didn't embrace or pander their pander to them by embracing their beliefs, but he did appeal to them on the basis of opposition to slavery. He said, it is wise for you to vote for me. And he stayed silent about everything else other than slavery. And he wasn't called a flip-flopper or... Oh, he was. He absolutely was. One of these meetings is with Frederick Douglass. Didn't Frederick Douglass actually call him a racist? He called him a racist. He called him... Uh, the, the phrase that he used in the language of the time was that Lincoln was the representative of Negro hatred in the United States. Uh, that Lincoln was being too close to slave owners, that he was trying too hard. And this is when Lincoln had been elected president and the Civil War was on. Lincoln was trying to keep some of the so-called slave states where slavery was legal as a part of the union on the pro-government side because he wanted a majority of the country on his side. And so he wanted them to stay loyal if they would, even if they disagreed with him about slavery. And so he was slow to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, which of course freed the slaves of several, freed several million slaves of Southern rebels. He was slow uh, to do that. And Frederick Douglass, who had escaped from slavery and was a great writer and a great order, Frederick Douglass wrote not only that Lincoln represented Negro hatred, but that he was vacillating and slow and slothful. He used the word slothful to describe Lincoln's progress toward the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and then finally got to meet Lincoln. This is one of the 16 meetings that make up my book. The whole book is, is Lincoln's life story told through his meetings with people who differed with them, who disagreed with them, different races, genders, backgrounds, or beliefs. And uh, they, they got together and Lincoln said, I have read, I let you into my <laughs> office to talk to you, even though I have read what you have said about me, which is kind of amazing. And I have read that you said that I am slow, and I admit that sometimes I, I am slow. Um, but vacillation, going back and forth, I don't agree with. I don't think that charge can be sustained, Lincoln said. He said, when I once have taken a position, I don't think it can ever be shown that I retreated from it. And Frederick Douglass, who had come to protest and complain, found that a reasonable position and also a powerful position that Lincoln did need to move slowly for political reasons, but that he was not going to go back on freedom, which he didn't. It wasn't the case, as it was apparently with many slaveholders, that they said it's a deplorable institution, but now's not the time to do it oh. in one fell swoop. Yeah, it no, it's, it, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. It pereni perennially now is not the time. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, we can relate that to any number of issues today, can't we? I mean, there, there were people who literally owned slaves who would say this is an evil institution. It's really unfortunate that it was brought to our shores uh, before us, but here it is and it's the system. And so it's not in my interest right now to be against it, um, or I am afraid. This is another thing that a lot of white people would say at this time. I oppose slavery, I'm against slavery, but I'm afraid of what would happen if several million people were suddenly freed. What if that led to some revolt or 
or race war. Uh, they would even go on to say the black race was not as numerous, so they would be they would lose the war and they would be exterminated. And so you were pro-black people when you were in favor of doing nothing about slavery. I mean, I, I'm just relating to you the logic that people would use at the time. You know, it's an old ploy to make yourself feel okay. It reminds me of St. Augustine's famous prayer. Lord, make me chaste, but not just yet. <laughs> that is part of the, the, the thinking here. Um, but, it, but it does, like, you think about uh, an issue like, I don't know, uh, climate change, just to, just to give an example. Um, the parallels are not exact, but they're sort of there. I mean, it, it's an issue that's about the economy and how the economy is built. And it's a big, ongoing, multi-generational problem. And any of us alive today didn't start it and aren't responsible for it in that way. But we face a challenge of doing something practical about it. And it can be really hard. And it can also be really easy to find reasons not to do anything practical about it. And that's true of, of a great number of ongoing, long-term generational issues that we face all the time. We praise him and we think about him as learning by reading books by the firelight. Yeah. But he listened and learned from actual people how they think, why they spoke the way they did, what their tone of voice meant. Yeah. T tell, me, tell me a little more about that. I was intrigued by that in your First, book. First, I'm, I'm, I'm touched that, that, that you read that. Uh, that was one of a large number of things that I felt I didn't know or didn't understand when I began reading and researching the life of this super famous guy that I had read a bunch of books about before. And I knew the famous, uh, I don't want to say myth because it's true as far as it goes, the story of this, this, this poor boy on the Indiana frontier who's having to cut down trees with an ax for his father and, and his mother dies when Lincoln is not even 10. And he pulls himself up with hardly any formal education because he's obsessed with reading. He loves reading and he'll walk for miles to read a book. But in looking at the accounts of young Lincoln, the ones that had been set down and preserved, it became apparent to me that his observation of people was just as powerful, if not more so, than his interest in books. He didn't have the greatest books to read on the Indiana frontier. He'd read whatever he could, but it wasn't going to be that much. Um, but every person he met was someone who was relevant to a future leader of a republic, a future leader of a democracy, because any person, well, okay, any white man, since it was the 19th century, had a vote, had some power. Um, and even uh, a woman in that situation might not have formal power, but could have influence, could be an important person to know and to understand. And his stepmother left an account of her stepson, Abraham Lincoln, what he would do as a boy when other grown-ups would visit their cabin in the woods. Abraham would sit there silently, not saying a word, listening to their whole conversation as they caught up with all the news from the other farms or wherever the other person that people had come from. And then when the visitors left, he would begin asking questions about every detail down to the smallest thing because Abraham wanted to understand everything. And it's clear to me from other accounts that I found that, that he was constantly 
observing people. I end absorbing human nature, his idea of human nature. My other super favorite example of this was letter writing. He had taught himself, mostly taught himself to read and write. He learned good handwriting, which is incredible since he had less than a year of formal education. And he began writing letters for illiterate settlers so they could send the mail back home. And he confided to someone that in being a scribe for someone, he could see their innermost thoughts and feelings that they were confiding to their loved ones far away. And this too became part of his study of humanity and of human nature. This is a wonderful insight into the man. What I'm getting from this is this ability, this interest in what's going on inside the mind of another person gives him a handle on how he can determine what their actual self-interest is and how to play to that self-interest. Yeah, yeah, that was the other side of the politics. Um, and I don't think we can say that he did that in a totally cynical way. I mean, people will sometimes calculate a voter's self-interest in this, like, I'm going to cut your taxes um, or I'm going to keep the the... The, the I'm going to keep the public building out of your neighborhood or whatever. I mean, there, there are ways to appeal to self-interest that we might question, depending on our our politics. Lincoln wouldn't exactly do that, but he would frame his arguments about slavery in a way that the electorate of the time could understand. And think about the challenge of that, because the people who are most affected by slavery, to state the obvious, are black people, are the enslaved. And yet the people with 99.9% um, .9 of the votes in America in the 1800s are white men. And so it would be easy for those voters never quite to care enough about the black people in slavery. And Lincoln's approach to this problem was not necessarily to say, you should feel guilty, you should feel bad about the poor black man, you should feel sympathy or sorrow for this and act out of the goodness of your heart. Um, he didn't really believe that people acted politically out of the goodness of their heart. They acted on their interests, which sounds really dark, but it's also understandable. We all have to look after our interests. Who else is gonna look after them if we don't? And so he needed to give them a reason that they would care themselves, viscerally themselves, and feel interested in the problem. He would say slavery, the, the, the slave interests, the slave power, the slave owners want the institution to spread. And if you're not careful, it's gonna spread into your state and harm your effort for free labor. He um, was in New England and giving a series of speeches in early 1860. It was effectively a campaign swing because he was about to run for president that year an unannounced campaign swing. And he gave a couple of different speeches in which he had noted um, in the newspapers that there was a shoemaker's strike. There was a labor dispute. There was an actual strike going on in 1860. And Lincoln said, I am glad to know that we have a system of labor where a man can strike if he wants to. And that to him was infinitely better than the alternative, which was a system of labor where you cannot because you are forced to work. Um, and when he said things like that, he appealed to the average person and his appeal for equality began to come home. He was arguing based on a line in the Declaration of Independence 
that all men are created equal. And the specific thing that he argued for was not even equal political rights. It was equal right to be paid for your labor. He said in a speech, a black woman has the same right to be paid for her work as you do or I do. And that is something that a white voter could understand because that white voter wanted to be paid fairly for his labor. Um, later on during the Civil War, when there were people who were upset about the Emancipation Proclamation in the North because they were still fearful of freed slaves and what they would do, a race war and all that kind of stuff, um, or coming North to take your jobs. When, when, when he, he was, was dealing with that kind of voter, he said, freeing the slaves is in your interest because once they're freed, the men are signing up for the Union Army and helping to fight the war. They're fighting your battles and therefore equality is in your interest, even if you don't like it. And in that way, he was appealing to people without trying to change their minds about race or anything else, because that's really hard, really slow. He was trying to get to them in a more visceral place where they would vote the right way, and he succeeded just often enough. When we come back from our break, Steve Inskeep tells me about Lincoln's lifelong relationship with his best friend, that friendship was also the inspiration for the title of Steve's book, Differ We Must. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Steve Inskeep. We'd been talking about Lincoln's skill at what today we would call coalition building. I get the impression that as he made these efforts to find common ground, he didn't engage in shaming the other person no. or no. displaying his own no. virtuous position as superior. No, that's a very insightful point. Um, he, he did not claim to be morally better than anybody else, which is amazing because we think of him as a saint and as a moral lighthouse, a moral beacon. 
Um, but he once told a crowd of Illinois voters, this is a free state, these are people who don't have slavery and at least theoretically are against slavery. He said, uh, as human beings, we're no better than slave owners, effectively, he said, which is a really dark sounding thought. But what he meant was, he said, if they were in our position, they would do as we do. If we were in their position, we would do as they do because people act on their interests and some people were born into this terrible system. Slaves were born into the system. The owners were often born into the system. They had inherited this terrible system and they defended it, the slave owners did, uh, to protect their interests. And so Lincoln's enemy was never the individual slave owner who he believed to be wrong. His enemy was the terrible system. And the system he would not compromise with on one basic point, that it was wrong. The thing that ultimately made him radical and made him threatening to Southern slave owners, even though in some ways he seemed like a moderate, was that he insisted that slavery was wrong, that it should someday somehow end. This seems to have worked right up until the Civil War. And now we're encouraged to study history so we don't repeat it. Do we have something that happened at that time that we should look for in our time so that we don't take a turn off the highway by the sign that says this way to the Civil War? Yeah, I don't think we would ever want another uh, Civil War, but I want to think about the question a little differently. Um, I mean, I guess it would have been better if the Civil War had never happened, but there was in one way a profound and powerful and positive result, the death of slavery. Um, one reason there was a civil war was that Southern, I mean, the, the, the actual cause, the proximate cause was that Southern slave owners uh, felt threatened and started the war and attempted to break up the, the, the country. But another thing that was happening, another part of the dynamic was that a large part of the country that had tolerated an intolerable institution for generations began to say, this is a problem we must face that we cannot turn away from anymore. And in a way that is a positive thing about this otherwise terrible episode. And it's something maybe that we can draw from this. I don't want us to be heading toward a civil war. I don't think we have a reason for it at the moment. Um, but the, the idea of trying to build a majority that pushes for as much equality as we can get away with at the moment, and that insists upon our democratic institutions and preserving them and strengthening them and passing them on to the next generation, that is something worth fighting for. I hope we don't fight for it with bullets, um, but we can certainly fight for it with votes and with our words and with our thoughts and our deeds, and that maybe is an inspiration rather than a caution. As you say that, it occurs to me that we've lived a few lifetimes in the aftermath of the Civil War, which, while it ended slavery, retained slavery light. Yeah. And now we're faced again with whether or not we're going to abolish slavery light. The war doesn't seem to have helped in that. Oh, well, um, I mean— Whatever we've got now is better than slavery, that's for sure. 
Um, and I would argue, if you look at the statistics, that what we have now is better than what we had in 1943 or 1963 or, or 1983 or 2003. Once I got a chance to see the uh, historian John Hope Franklin um, give a speech, this was about 15 years ago, uh, and someone stood up in the audience and said, I feel that as far as race relations in America go, nothing has changed. And John O. Franklin uh, was very patient, but very firm in saying, just let me tell you what I have seen. And this is a much younger person raising the question. He said, I was around in 1947 and a grown up in 1947. And I remember what conditions were like for black men then. And so much has changed now even if we are frustrated about um, what has not. And this makes me think, Alan, of something that Lincoln himself said during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the last of them in 1858. He was talking about this idea of equality in the Declaration of Independence, which to state the obvious, the founders laid out as a promise and failed to keep up, um, failed to enact fully. And he said, this is an ideal to shoot for that is never perfectly attained, but can be approximated in ways that adds to the happiness and well-being of people of all colors everywhere. Um, and when I read that, what I see is a generational challenge. No battle in politics is ever over. Nothing is ever fully won. Any gain that you get, you can lose again. And if we just look at the ideal of equality, not only do we never perfectly attain it, we never entirely agree on what it means. And we update and change our idea of what it means. So there's this constant back and back and forth that is never over. Uh, and that's okay because it's a free society where we should all disagree and push and pull on each other a little bit. But I, I guess I have a little bit of optimism because uh, I would agree with John O. Franklin that a lot does change as time goes on, even if the argument does not finish. We're speaking about sweeping changes in a large population. And I think one of the most interesting encounters that you have in your book of 16 encounters with people he differed with, and I think it's the one that gave you your title, his relationship with his best friend. Yeah. Refresh me on that. Sure, sure. His best friend was Joshua Speed who was from Kentucky as Lincoln was, except that where Lincoln was born into a poor family that eventually left the state, Joshua Speed was born into a rich family that was a slaveholding family. His father owned a hemp farm outside of Louisville. By the time of his father's death, he owned 57, I think, human beings, 50-some human beings who worked that farm for him. That was his human property, and that was the world in which Joshua Speed grew up. Now, as an adult, Joshua Speed moved to the free state of Illinois and became best friends with Lincoln. They were roommates for four years. They slept in the same bed for four years, which is a totally different topic we could talk about sometime. But in any case, they were very close, uh, lifelong friends. And by the 1850s, Speed was willing to say that slavery was wrong. Um, and Lincoln wrote him a letter in which he said, you say slavery is wrong as an abstract matter, but, and here I paraphrase, you're not serious about it. You're not serious about it politically. You're coming up with excuses and rationalizations for not doing what is possible to do. Um, and 
I, you're wrong about that. But Lincoln goes on to say, but if for that we differ, differ we must. Um, and he signs the letter, your friend forever. And so he's saying, you have this really awful view of you that we would consider repugnant, really. Um, but I'm not going to disown you. I'm not going to ostracize you. I'm not going to cancel you. I'm not going to isolate you. I'm going to keep working on you because I see other values in you. And also I have confidence in you. And as it turned out, a few years later, Lincoln had been elected president and the Civil War was underway. And one of his vital tasks was to keep Kentucky, this slave state, in the Union. And Joshua Speed played a role in that, helped him in some way in the early months of the rebellion. He ultimately got use for the country out of not abandoning that guy who was wrong. The little things can have a big impact. Yeah. This has been really fascinating. I'd love someday to bump into you and talk to you for hours about this. Oh, that'd be fantastic. I'd love to. We always end every show with seven quick questions. Oh, okay. Of all the things that you could understand in, in the universe, what do you wish you really understood? Oh, my goodness. I, these are supposed to be quick questions? The questions are quick. The answers can be quick, too. Okay. Uh, where is the nearest planet and who lives there? <laughs> the nearest one is Earth. I'm don't, sorry. Don't, don't, I mean the don't nearest, inhabited, nearest inhabited planet. <laughs> There we go. But thank you for the answer. You've given that answer, so we don't need to do the other six. No, go on, go on, go on. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Um, you try to do it in a way that doesn't make it personal, um, that focuses on the facts rather than their motives. And that sounds straight out of Lincoln's playbook. I, I feel that I've learned a little bit about how to do my job, honestly, by reading about Lincoln. Uh. Yeah. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? That one right there. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, people, people, well, I mean, the most common question people ask is, when do you start work? Because I have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to do my, to do my day job or, or, or night job. How do you deal with a compulsive talker? Um, I listen. I try to be patient. But if they're live on the radio... I have occasionally had to signal to the broadcast engineer to turn down their volume so that I can get a word in. And does it sound like they've stopped talking voluntarily? It's kind of the volume goes down. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. Okay. How do you begin a, a genuine conversation? Oh, gosh, with a question. Where are you from? How come you're here tonight? Um, or some comment about something they're wearing, anything at all, ask a question that gets them talking about themselves. I, I, and, and I feel that I can do that genuinely because people are so interesting. I'm so afraid to do that point blank because I'm afraid that he'll say, well, I'm your representative in Congress. <laughs> anything could go wrong at that point. You never <laughs> right. know. What gives you confidence? Um, if I have confidence, uh, it's that I'm always learning. Um, and, and, and I understand that other people are too. Um, you know, you try to approach the world with humility and not expect yourself to know everything all the time. Um, and 
realize that most other human beings don't know everything either. So just go up and say what you need to say. Do what you need to do. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, uh, I can name one. I can name several. But one that I often think about is The Power Broker by Robert Caro, which is a story about Robert Moses, this guy who did a lot of the built environment of New York City in the 20th century, the roads and bridges and 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 parks and and other things, uh, and how he exercised power to do that and often devastated people's lives. And I read that while I was a college student in New York City, and it profoundly changed the way that I think about cities and the built environment and the way that the acts that we commit today in concrete especially, but in many ways, affect generations after we are gone. Um, and the, I've traveled all around the world since then and constantly thought about the built environment and about the long-term nature of many of the decisions that we make. That's great. I hope you never stopped thinking. Thank and you. And when you get a chance, come back and tell me a little bit more about what you've been thinking. I'd love that. I'd love that. It's been an honor to meet you. For me too. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Steve Inskeep is host of NPR's Morning Edition, as well as the news podcast Up First. His books on 19th century American history include Jackson Land, Imperfect Union, and his new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with a young man who escaped the Taliban to become a graduate student in the astronomy department at UCLA. It was a journey that began with his building his own telescope out of magnifying glass lenses and a stovepipe. It was not only difficult, but it was actually impossible to find a telescope in Afghanistan under those conditions. And then I made my own telescope. It worked. I was able to see the moons of Jupiter and the rings of Saturn. I saw the distinct stars of Pleiades, and I definitely saw thousands and thousands, even millions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. The inspiring story of Abraham Amiri, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Who does?
doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus. Hmm? You're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Expectations matter. What do you expect from an SUV? Versatility? A range of sizes built to fit your life? A range of exteriors that all invite stairs? Or being able to take control of more than just the wheel? Expectations matter, but exceeding them matters more. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel.